It's Simmer's Morning Skate, a podcast for the hockey news. I'm Rob Simpson, a.k.a. Simmer. Gary Green was the youngest coach in NHL history at age 26 when he coached the Washington Capitals. Paul Maurice is next, 28 when he took over the Hartford Whalers in 1995. He's presently the second longest tenured active coach in the National Hockey League, having taken over the Jets midway through the 2013-14 season. He's a year behind John Cooper in Tampa. A couple conversation clarifiers. Maurice went with two junior teams to the Memorial Cup final as a very new assistant coach in 1988 with the Windsor Spitfires and as a head coach with the Detroit Junior Red Wings in 1995. He lost both of those games, upset in one, failing to upset in the other. Maurice and Randy Carlisle have the rare distinction in recent times of being hired as a head coach on a non-interim basis by the same NHL club twice, Maurice in Carolina, Carlisle in Anaheim. Clever, interesting, always straightforward. Here's Paul Maurice. Paul, first of all, don't look intimidated. I'm wearing my cheaters because I'm old. I know it makes me look intellectual. I've got them built into my glasses that I'm wearing. I've got three different levels of blindness going on. Uh, speaking of that, happy birthday. It's your yeah. birthday month. You weren't crazy about re reminding you that you're uh, 53. But you remember, that's the difference between being 5 and 53. When, when you're 5, it's the greatest day ever, and 53, you're going, God, another one. But better right than the alternative, as they say. Well, you've been coaching the NHL for 25 years, so you don't yeah. really know anything else. You don't know what it probably Correct. means or feel. Like, what are you supposed to be when you're 53? How you know, would you know? You, you, it's, it's so funny because you come to Toronto, you end up running into all your friends or people that you know and had a yesterday afternoon with a guy who's my age from my hometown reminiscing about that you know then we start talking what would you do when you retire and the answer is I have absolutely no idea I mean maybe fish a little bit but how much can you do that I've done nothing else my entire life right been coaching since I was 20 years old and been around the hockey life so I'm, I'm gonna try to stick around as long as I can uh, and you actually started because of an injury. You were a player. You were yeah. a 12th round pick. Well, I, I, you know what? I, I Yes, the truth is I lost most of the sight in one of my eyes when I was 17 uh, playing for the Windsor Spitfires and Jim Rutherford was the GM at the time. Uh, so I played there two and a half years and then I got the opportunity to be an assistant coach and I and I took it, honest to God, Mr. Kermanis, who, who owned our junior team, uh, also was the Compure Corporation and I thought I could get a green card, possibly, and go to work for the company. You know, computers were just were just starting to heat up. It was in the mid-80s. This was going to be a big deal. So I got into this for the green card, and it kind of changed over the years. <laughs> Did that, the, the Carmanos relationship had to factor into, uh, you're a great trivia answer, second youngest head coach ever at age 28, and the second one is very unusual post-expansion to go back as a non-interim and be hired by the same team again. That had to be the Carmanos factor in Carolina, right? I remember, um, so I I stopped playing for the junior team halfway through, and it was the year that we went to the Memorial Cup final and lost. We went 33-2 and two or something after after they got rid of me, and they went 15-1 and one in the playoffs and lost the Memorial Cup final. Anyway, at the banquet at the end of the year, yeah. Mr. Carmanos says, how did you enjoy the coaching? What do you, what do you want to do next year? And I said, Peter loved it, and I'd like to do it next year if I can. He said, you'll have a job as long as you want. Hmm. And that was in 1988. And then the first time I got fired, I think, was uh, 03, and then the next time, probably 2012. Right. 
You grew up in the Sioux. I did. Uh, did you marry a Michigander? No. Uh, like most of us, uh, you're junior hockey uh, girl okay. from, from Windsor, Ontario, yeah. Okay. Pretty close, though. Close to Detroit because you were in the Detroit area for a while. Yeah, I was there 11 years from playing from 84 to, to 95. And Pete DeBoer was one of your assistant coaches. Yeah, Pete and I played junior together. Then we lived together uh, while he was going to law school. Um, and then, you know, I got the job in August. Tom Webster had stepped down, and Jim Rutherford offered me the job, and I needed the staff. So Pete and I were living together. He was going to law school at the time. I said, why don't you just help me out? And then the next year, so in that, the year after, Mr. Kermanis buys the Hartford Whalers. So everybody leaves. Jim Rutherford, the whole staff goes, equipment and everybody. And they said, Paul, you're the coach and GM now, and hire Pete and so the two of us kind of ran it that year and we went to the Memorial Cup final. Yep. Does that still bug you you lost in 88? Uh, the one in uh, no, not as much as the the one in '95. Now I, I can understand '95. They had Tucker again, Doan, all on one team, but we had a team that was projected not to make the playoffs that year. It was really young. We had. Half of our team was U.S.-born players, so we had a really unusual group and uh, got to the Memorial Cup final and probably shouldn't have and just got our doors blown off us in the final. Yeah, uh, We've talked to hockey a number of times when you were Carolina 1.0, yeah. 2.0, here in Toronto. Uh, I'd missed you in your Hartford and Magnitogorsk. Right, right. <laughs> the tour. Uh, was that sketchy, or what did you think of your year in Magnitogorsk? Uh, it was brilliant. I mean, it was very, very difficult personally uh, to be that far away from home. You know, clearly your family's not with you at that time, but professionally, you know, if you can learn, they always say if you can learn one thing. And I'm walking down the hallway, so this is a little bit of a longer story, but there's a player there who has a special, who has no parents, he's about 19, 20 years old, and he has a significantly special needs brother that he's taken care of by himself. Now, he's at the lower end of the, the payroll spectrum, so he wouldn't be making that much money. I mean, there's, he's not retiring at 30 with what he makes. And, and I'm pulling for this guy, right? Like, I, And he had three really good games, and we're walking past each other in the hallway, and I stop him. But I have absolutely no way to communicate to this guy. So, you know, you grab the interpreter. But, but I remember thinking right out there, I don't talk to my players enough. And that, that was a bit of an epiphany for me. And I think it changed because that's probably when you go from, like, the old school idea of what a head coach was. And when I come in at 28, I'm mimicking what I see, right? You're in a bad mood all the time. You're swearing all the time. And you just skate everybody after you lose. That's kind of the, the at least that stereotypical thought of what a coach was. And then things change, and now communications, everything. So that was a really important moment for me. Also, understanding what European players go through—it is so different over there, and and the game, how they train, what they think. So they come over to us at 19, 20, 21, and we expect them to learn all the things that they've been trading the opposite in a week. And then, and then I know as a coach, then I take it personally. So if I tell a European guy to do this and he doesn't do it right away, I go, why is he not listening to me? So, you know, it's, it, it was really important for that. I have a, a better understanding of, of the challenges of going to a foreign country where language is, is a real challenge and the game is completely different. Winnipeg Jets head coach Paul Maurice on Simmer's Morning Skate. Man of integrity. We could have done this yesterday at a practice, but you were like, no, no, you'd be lying to the listeners because it's not the morning skate, it's a practice. It's not the same thing. So, you know, yes. it's good. Your, your fidelity to principle. Quality control on that. No, you know what's <laughs> funny about this is, is your life is wholly and completely routined. Yeah. So I can look three months down the road, pick a day, and tell you within an hour what I'm going to be doing, and then... 
in an instant, 10 things change, right? So yeah. all that. So yesterday we had about five questions that had to get answered in a half hour period and uh, we got tied up. Well, that brings us to the next thing because you, you mentioned an unusual year in the KHL, but this is a weird year. I mean, you have, you have a ton of man games lost to injury. Yeah. There's probably times you're saying, hey, buff, go. Oh, wait, no yeah. buff. And, and it's already a pressure year for you anyway. Right. You know what's, what, where you notice is that Brian Little was on the ice the other day and, you're, and he's skating around and going, oh, he's a good player. <laughs> Forgot about him. Like to have him. Yeah, boy, we could fit him in a couple of different spots, but it's been an unusual year. We had a huge amount of changeover, um, much like Toronto in some ways, and that the, the, these young players came in and produced such big numbers that they garnered a big chunk of your resources. So there's, I don't know if, it, if you're saying it's a step back, but clearly, and then with the Dustin situation, we lost four of our six defensemen, which which we thought if we could make enough adjustments, we could survive. And then you get the big injuries. Brian Little goes down, and uh, you know we'll be with Dustin and running almost 200 halfway through the season, which normally destroys teams. But we've had some, some good things happen for us. Our goaltending's been very good. We've got a bunch of battlers on our back end. Now, we're not moving the puck the way we used to. We, we, we don't generate nearly as much from our blue line, certainly in the offensive zone. We got a pretty darn good forward group still, uh, but when Matty Perot and Andrew Kopp go down, you're thin there as well. So that's, I think, for me, what December was was the month of we probably crossed the threshold of how many injuries you can survive. Like just take a look at what Montreal is going through right now. You know, what, why is their team sliding? Well, they got five really good players out of their lineup, and yeah. this league doesn't forgive that. So we're hopeful now. Andrew's back. Um, don't know how much longer it's going to be on Brian. It's pretty significant. Who knows what's going to happen with Dustin? But we've had a pretty good identity, uh, a cultural kind of movement in our room, that whole us against them, and nobody expects us to be any good. Let's just play harder and see what happens. Yeah, Nice win in Montreal, by the way. Yeah. We hope to get one here. Is, is there any thought or reminiscence or feeling when you walk into a former building like you were a head coach? When you come into Toronto buildings, not very often anymore, right. what, what's a, what, what do you spot that makes you think of something? First of all, there's been so much change over here. It's not the Leafs that I coached, right? There's there's two or three guys, the assistant equipment manager, and that's about it. Yeah. So there's not the same connection. I don't. Uh, was, is there anything geographical or physical about the place? You know what? I know I know where the stairwell is, but they've repainted everything. <laughs> they've moved everything around. This this is what it's like getting fired as a coach. So you got a marriage. And you were like madly in love at one point, and then things maybe get a little rocky. Uh, and you come home one day and you say, Well, listen, we're getting divorced. By the way, there's going to be a press conference in three hours. I'm going to introduce my new husband, and we're going to talk about how fabulous he is for the next month, right? So there's that sting. I mean, it's personal. It's a very, very personal thing, and it's a very public thing, and then, and then it disappears. Toronto was different for me. Carolina. That's where my kids were born. You're connected. I also had a really unusual relationship with the GM and the owner, very close friends. So there was no ill will when it was done. Toronto wasn't here long enough to get particularly attached to anything, and it was... You know, it was the best thing that ever happened, right? For me, I needed to go to survive. Yeah. It's a tough market to come out of after you've been fired. When you look at, I know Pat Quinn did it, but he went to the World Juniors, won a gold, I think, and that's how I kind of got back behind the bench. But really, the only two other guys that survived it are me and Randy Carlisle. Yeah. And we both had to get hired by the guys that we'd worked through before because you get pounded on the way out. You're the dumbest man alive. So I survived it. And, and Toronto, the other part was it was still really cool. At the end of the day, it's still the Toronto Maple Leafs, and 
I know that there was lots of con- you know, the Tannen bombs were very good to me and my family. I had a really positive experience here. The last year was an absolute crime scene of events that just, right. you know, that's a book in itself. Uh, but my experience with Toronto was really positive, so I kind of, in- I don't have any ill will. I'm not clairvoyant, but I do believe at some point in your life, before you're 75 years of age, you will be coaching the Detroit Red Wings. So you'll be back. You'll be back in Detroit. Now, speaking of speaking of funny stuff, me and one of your broadcasters yesterday were thinking about worst co- questions you could ask a coach. Right. And one of them is like, okay, who's your least favorite ref and why? That right. would be a that, bad one. That one, especially if he's active, right? Yeah, if he's exactly. still working. Or how's the rash? That'd right. be a bad one. Right. Or stuff like that. Yeah. You know, you just. What, do you remember any like really stupid? You just ignore them, right? You can't. You don't try to embarrass a guy, right? The ones I usually have an answer, whether it's good or bad. I usually, you know, you like I probably do. It's two or three times a day for 25 years, so you kind of get into a rhythm of it. I got asked a question. I'm not going to tell you who, because it wasn't that long about about a player who the coaching staff and I had just killed for 15 minutes in the coach's office after the game. Like he was so bad right. and. The question was, hey, this guy had a great night tonight. What would you think of his game? And I got frozen. And I got, and, and my wife's laughing because she watched it after, and she said, your mouth's hanging open, and nothing came out for about 10 <laughs> seconds. And you're going, oh, I can't believe you just asked me that. Um, and then we're over in Finland there, and I, I don't remember the exact words, but it's on the Internet. Somebody asked me between Barkoff on line A, was Patty going to show Barkoff who's your daddy or something like that? And I, I kind of like... No, but more like what happens is you get asked a question and a string of words will come out of your mouth and you'll go, oh, you can't say that. Or that didn't come out anywhere the way I thought it was going to come out. If you talk enough in the media, you're going to say something ridiculously stupid at some point. Right. Is, is there a visceral response to when you hear other coaches getting released? having gone through it like because yeah. we've had it we've had it happen six times this year you know what there are a lot of different situations to be honest the guys getting there's um i called pete DeBoer after i heard and left him a brutal brutally profane um congratulatory message uh, about how lucky he was because there is situations where you kind of you've you've run as hard as you can with that group and now he's going to sit at home and and life's going to be pretty good because he's a great coach. Yeah. It's harder when you see a young guy that gets fired and you're sitting there going, he's got a you know a wife and kids, and there's a chance he doesn't get back in. Like, like there's not the drop between what you're doing in the NHL to the AHL is is, is pretty significant, right? There's just not a lot of these jobs. And for the most part, none of us are also bankers or lawyers on the side. Well, I just beat the boys, but. You know what? There's there's a certain uh, specialization that comes to this that precludes you from going out and getting another job two weeks later, doing something successfully well. So there's there's the pain for that. But you know what? The the big change over the years is I, I think professional development's got better. I think when you get to the NHL as a head guy, if you have any kind of success, it's uh, you're still real valuable. You're going to get another chance. How much coffee do you drink? A whole lot less than I used to. So I probably used to run about 12 to 16 a day. What? For fun. What? Right, four, four before. So I get up real early. And then uh, on a game day, yeah, I'd have five or six done by 10 o'clock in the morning. For, yeah, back at the rink at two for sure. And now three a day maximum. Oh, that's good. Because the blood pressure gets a little bit. Yeah. Well, that's right. Circling back to your age. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're exactly right. You know, I, I, uh, I can't drink as much coffee as I used to because it doesn't doesn't work anymore and your childhood peanut butter jiff or skippy or something else or uh, no you know what my older brother 
Um, I only ask because I want to be the GIF spokesman. He was, he was a fitness guy, so we went a long stretch of natural peanut butter. You know, like uh, that sawdust and oil? Yeah, that like separates? Like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we had that at the house for a while. Uh, happy, healthy, prosperous 2020 to you and your family. Always a delight, or I was going to say not ever not a delight. Does that make sense? Anyway. Either way. Thanks, Paul. No Great stuff. My pleasure. Thank you very much. You've heard the term before, and Maurice definitely fits it. A class act. Earnest and entertaining, and it's always a pleasure running into him at any rink. Simmer's morning skate is now 1-1, one and one, by the way. Maurice's Jets beat the Maple Leafs that night in a shootout 4-3. If you enjoyed this podcast, there will be more coming, and you can always find delightful, in-depth podcast efforts from the Hockey News' outstanding editorial staff, also at thehockeynews.com. There's a good chance you're more of a techie than I am, so see if you can subscribe to the THN Podcasts via your podcast app. And with a quick click on the homepage of the Hockey News, you can subscribe to the print and digital editions of the Bible of Hockey. Great deals for you, your friends, and family, available at thehockeynews.com. I'm Rob Simpson. This has been Simmer's Morning Skate for the Hockey News. Enjoy the hockey action. Mm-hmm.